Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Gail Tzemach Lamon, author of Daughters of Kabani, the story of rebellion, courage, and justice. Gail is the author of two New York Times bestselling books and serves as an adjunct fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. She is also a national security analyst for multiple TV stations. Gail, welcome to That Said. Oh, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So I'd love to begin, as I always begin, which is to ask you to tell us um, something about yourself. You know, I'm someone who has the privilege of being able to tell stories that I think are deeply important and maybe ones that other folks haven't seen in this notion of counting the uncounted and seeing the invisible. And the Daughters of Kobani, I think, is probably a little bit of an example of the stories I think are deeply important that we haven't seen previously. You write um, in the dedication of your book uh, to your mom and to your your grandma saying, um, this book is dedicated to them because they taught you everything. And in the preface to the book, you say, I had, and we'll talk about this in a minute, you said, I had no real intention about writing this book. I was going to write a book about the, the, the family of women that I was raised with. So give us a preview of what is going to be your fourth book, which will be <laughs> how you were raised and, and, and how they taught you everything. Because I always think it's important to understand who you are so we understand what you write about. Yeah, I agree. I love the question. Uh, I grew up in a community of single moms in Prince George's County, Maryland, and was keenly aware of class, actually from a very small age, uh, and of being on the wrong side of the divide. We grew up in my god sister and sort of this community of single moms that was purposely moved to the same condo complex so that they could take care of each other's kids and be there if they needed sugar or childcare or uh, a ride somewhere if their car broke down. And there were all women working uh, at least two jobs, none of whom had a college degree. And they really taught us to get up every single morning and to go to work. And as my mother used to say, on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. <laughs> so- That's great. Now, your, 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 your dad gets a bit of a dedication. His is a little bit more precise. Um, tell, tell us a bit about that. Because his, his actually, his storyline informs a lot about the way you view the world too, I think. I do. I think that's right. I, you know, I am a, a, probably a perfect product of Prince George's County in this world that was mixed with people from all over the world, truly. And my father was one more story. You know, he was someone who lost, born in Baghdad, mother from Baghdad, father from Kirkuk in Northern Iraq and had Grown up as a boy in Baghdad, really happy, loved his city, loved his town, loved the food. And then uh, at the age of seven or eight or nine, somewhere right around there, really lost his country when, um, and really his world, I think. But he never talked about it when he became a boy and he was on the wrong side of the religious divide, right? And, and really never got back what he lost in those years, uh, even though I think he never spoke about it. And probably that was one sign of how important uh, that event was. It was too important to talk about with a child who clearly didn't understand, you know, what, it, what all of that was like to lose your language and your food and your street and your neighborhood and your school and all of those things as a child. Yeah. Uh, he became a, a refugee at age seven, having to go from 
Baghdad to Israel to to Miami. Um, <laughs> yes, and he was and he was also just a huge character. So my father was uh, somebody who came. Uh, I think to appreciate the notion of women's rights and women's equality, but really only after being hammered by his daughter <laughs> for decades. And we would joke about it all the time. And that there is a moment in the prologue of the book. It's the first time I've ever written about him, uh, honestly. And, you know, I don't think I fully understood who he was until I spent a lot of time in the region. And then I realized all these things as an American kid growing up with an immigrant parent, right, that you think uh, are weird or strange as a child, right, and come to deeply appreciate as an adult, you understand that they're perfectly, um, they're the most comprehensive of things when you see them in, in the context in which they come from. And, and I just wish I could have seen it while he was alive. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, his worldview shaped by his life informs how he raised you and what your priorities, his priorities were for you. And it's the way the life of, of all of us is in some, in some measure. So tell us about um, why you decided to write this book. It's in some sense, let me just say it's in some sense for the listening audience, it's in some sense, it's part two of Ashley's war. Um, so maybe you can start answering the question by saying, give us two minutes of Ashley's war and then tell us, about your phone call from Cassie and, and sure. we can move forward. So Ashley's War was my second book about an all-women special operations team in the U.S. that had been recruited for Army Ranger and Navy SEAL missions in 2011, while women were officially banned from ground combat. And the reporting process, and that really took me with a flashlight into that community, into that world that was really hidden in plain sight of women who had uh, really served at the operational edge at a time when officially, you know, America had no idea they were there. And Ashley's War was really about their friendship, their love, their courage, their valor, their heart, and their humor. Uh, and the kind of sisterhood born of battle, which we haven't seen on our pages and our screens as much as we have actually seen it in real life on the battlefield. So it was, it was a real privilege to capture that story and to bring it to life in 2015 while all that history was happening. So when Ashley's War came out, there was no lifting yet of the ban on women in ground combat operations. Uh, that all came at the start of January, 2016. And that book led directly uh, to Daughters of Kobani because Cassie, a young uh, army officer at that time from Florida, uh, called me and said, I'm in Syria and you have to come see this. You have to see what's happening here. There are women leading the fight against ISIS as America's partner on the ground. Yeah. And uh, off, off you go, but, <laughs> but, um, and, and we'll talk about the, the, the women who you profile in the book and the battles that they fought in a minute, but I felt uh, important at this point to just pause for a second and have you give us um, a Council of Foreign Relations, wearing your Council of Foreign Relations hat, yes. uh, a bit of um, a history lesson about the, the the broader conflict in Syria and the Syrian-Kurdish fight for self-determination in Northeast Syria. Because it's important to understand the geography and geopolitics of the the stories that you get to. That's right. And, and really, you know, for readers who are about to pick up Daughters of Kobani, you follow the women whose lives are changed by this history, 
But it's really important for me that readers felt like they were steeped in how we got to this point. And the how we got to this point was the civil war in Syria starts as a very peaceful democratic protest led by young people fighting for freedom. We do not talk about that often enough and go back and rewind the clock to what these amazing young people, some of whom I've had the privilege of knowing, many of whom are in exile, if they survived, fought for, you know, which was freedom of expression, democratic values, human rights, all of these things. So that starts uh, in 2011 with this peaceful protest and just metastasizes over the years. It becomes very clear that the world is not interested in supporting regime change in Syria, right? I mean, there's, you know, the Obama administration was not about uh, to enter, you know, in another conflict in the Middle East. It deeply felt it had been shaped by the desire to, to end con- U.S. involvement in conflicts in the Middle East. And so you have this group of young people who then watch their protests turn into a very bloody armed conflict, that then metastasizes into a full civil war with powers from around the region and then around the world coming in. Uh, And into this vacuum come extremist groups, come Al-Qaeda-linked groups. Before there was an Islamic State, there were other, the the organizations that were the the precursors to it, uh, who shared many of their values. But on the Kurdish side, you have this ethnic minority that is the largest ethnic minority without a state. And they have this, they, they were largely concentrated in the northeast of the country. And for the Syrian Kurdish community, they had protested in 2004 against the Assad regime and paid dearly for it. And many young people were shaped by that so that by the time 2011 happens and the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad is facing existential, excuse me, existential threat, they are organized. A group of Syrian Kurds who had lived through 2004 and what had happened when they had really uh, seen their peaceful protests turn into facing uh, armed um, forces from the Syrian regime, they were ready to institute Kurdish self-rule. So Syrian civil war is happening. The Syrian regime pulls out of some of the areas in northeastern Syria. And this group of Syrian Kurds takes control of, sets up protection, I'm sorry, sets up people's protection units, sets up checkpoints, and institutes this experiment in Kurdish self-rule, recognized by nobody outside its borders, but that has this grassroots participatory democracy at its center and women at the core of that. And that group, the people's protection units, later in 2013, the women's protection units are the force that was keeping others out of largely Kurdish areas, which for the first time are are able to speak their language publicly, speak their language in official buildings, publish in their language, celebrate their holidays. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of the carnage of the broader civil war. Yeah. What's so interesting about the the Kurdish fight for self-determination is that they are not seeking regime change. They're just saying to Assad, essentially, Leave us to ourselves. Let us, you know, sort of live our lives safely, speaking our own language, naming our children in our own language, you know, sort of worshiping as we choose. And, you know, we won't bother you. You won't bother us. And, um, and they had sort of like core democratic values at the, at the center of that. 
That's correct. And it's a really big point of discussion for those who follow Syria policy and want to go deep. Uh, you know, the book really gets into this discussion about how um, there were many who saw them as you know, deeply supportive of the regime. And from their side, it was, we can't be sure that whomever would come next wouldn't be worse on Kurdish rights. And that was one of the guiding principles. And the second uh, principle was this notion of Kurdish self-rule, that it wasn't about the nation state. And this was all ideology and ideas shared by the person who was their ideological godfather, Abdullah Ocalan, sitting in prison in Turkey, influenced by the writer uh, Murray Bookchin, who is has his own pretty remarkable American story, um, who had really influenced him when thinking about how do you set up local grassroots New England town style, New England style town hall democracy um, with environmental awareness at its heart and from Ocalan's ideology with women right at the center? So regime change was not the goal, but self-rule very much was. Yeah. And uh, Abdullah Ocalan is is an interesting character and he plays out in different different ways here. He, he, he's a Marxist, Marxist, and he forms the PKK, which is the Kurdish, Kurdistan Workers Party. Um, he's living in Syria in exile for, for, for 20 years. And, 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 and as you say, he's informed by this, um, American, um, Jew from Vermont, uh, Murray um, Butchkin. Yeah, originally from New York with his own fascinating immigrant story, right? A, a guy right. who supported his mom, sold ice cream, walking across Central Park as a kid. Yeah, who finds himself in Vermont politics to the left of um, of Bernie Sanders and in a fight over a waterfront, right? That's right. Right. His 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 former wife really did battle Bernie Sanders on, uh, you know, was, was to the left of Bernie, Bernie Sanders when it came to this development project. And, you know, what are the what is the likelihood of all of these pieces coming together in the fight against the Islamic State? Right. But the the one thing I wanted to get to before we get to the the the, the YPJ, YPG, the that is um, how does it come to pass that Oshalan, who's living in Syria in exile, then becomes uh, sort of a designated terrorist and is is with U.S. help uh, arrested and and now finds himself sitting on an island alone in a Turkish prison cell. How, how does that play out? Because it seems that though he has a Marxist ideology, he's informed by fundamental democratic principles that would seem to align with U.S. Um, interests. So talk about this because it's complicated. It is complicated. And actually, there are folks uh, who are working on this issue now from the U.S. side on that designation. But here was the truth. The truth was that the, the relationship with NATO ally Turkey is deeply important to the United States and to many. And, and at that point, uh, there were warmer ties between Turkey and Israel right? In, in, in that were happening. And so this is the world of the late 1990s. And there was this discussion, you know, for Turkey, the PKK for, for the Turkish uh, leaders was uh, the threat, was an existential threat in their view, right? The, the, this violence that had taken lives of uh, Turkish citizens across ethnic backgrounds. And it is 100% true that both the, that Israel, the U.S., uh, a number of, uh, of European nations said no to, to giving Ocalan uh, refuge, that they helped Turkey 
both uh, take physical, um, you know, possession of Ojalan, right, and, and uh, imprison him. And in fact, originally he was sentenced to death, and it was only later that that um, assessment was changed to life in prison. And uh, Eliza Marcus is somebody uh, who's written a lot about this. She's working on updating her book right now, um, looking at his life and how this designation came to be and why this designation came to be. And Daughters of Kobani really looks at you know, what that meant for Turkish and U.S. relations uh, as it went forward. Yeah, because U.S. relations with Turkey is different than U.S. relations with Syria, which is different than U.S. relations with Iraq and Iran, all of which have sizable Kurdish presence. And as to each of those nations, the Kurds represent something different. Yes. And, and, you know, the Kurdish community is split among four countries currently, right? Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And Syria is actually the smallest population, right? It's the smallest group of Kurds are in Syria. Uh, and I think that's why it surprised so many when they took on, you know, for many people, for, for, this was the first time, the battle for Kobani was the first time anybody had heard of this group of Syrian Kurds. Uh, right. And, and it, I mean, even U.S. officials I spoke to said, you know, we were deeply surprised that this was the group of Syrian Kurds who uh, really ascended to power in the vacuum of the Syrian civil war. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the Kurdish women's protection units. You mentioned it a little bit coming out of the people's protection units after the soccer massacre of 2004, which you referenced, where there was a soccer game that turned uh, violent, and the Syrian forces just opened fire on on the Kurdish soccer fans, and they said, "Never again." Essentially, okay. Okay. and so the the women's uh, protection units evolved. Tell us a little about the evolution, and then let's let's turn to the the principal protagonists of of the book: uh, Azima, uh, Rojda, Noruz, and Zarin. So, you know, the, when People's Protection Units start, 2011, 2012, rag people come uh, take up arms. But it was very, uh, ragtag is sort of the U.S. version of the word you would use to describe um, what their efforts were. But they were effective uh, in protecting their neighborhoods. So even Kurds in the region who didn't necessarily love their ideology or agree with everything Ocalan said came to deeply appreciate the security being offered in the middle of true upheaval uh, all around. So the People's Protection Unit happens. And then in April, 2013, uh, women declare that there are now women's protection units that are all women fighting units. And when I asked uh, one of the fighters, one of the leaders uh, of the women's protection units, why? You know, why do you need to have your own units? Because you already have full equality according to your ideology, right? Inspired by Ocalan. You already are leading men in battle by 2013. You already see women fighting and dying and in, in without uh, regard to the roles they can play. You know, their gender wasn't determining the roles they could play. And she said, you know, we couldn't let stand a world in which women were property. And we just didn't want men taking credit for our work. And that moment of just understanding how universal that sentiment is and that she really was, you know, she wasn't joking and nor does she have connectivity to this world, right? To the, the U.S. and the dialogue going on here in this country. Uh, 
you know, she started, she said, why are you laughing? I said, well, because we will talk about this all the time in the United States, right? It's so deeply universal, this whole notion of uh, anybody who identifies as, as a woman can identify with the notion of men taking credit for your work. And so, you know, it was a very human desire to make it clear who was doing the fighting and dying. Yeah. You, you write um, that when you spoke to them, it's early in the, in, in the book and you, and you're, and you're speaking to a, a, a group of, of women um, fighters. And they said that they made clear that their ambition went well beyond the small sliver of Syria, Syria in which they were fighting. They wanted to serve as a model for the region's future with women's liberation as a crucial element of their quest for a locally led communal and democratic society. Yes, that is very much their vision, which crossed borders that wherever women were oppressed, they should be. And wherever uh, injustices were happening and being committed against women, it should be clear that those should not stand. Yeah. It's Tom Jode. I mean, they're, 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 wherever there's an injustice, they want to be to right that injustice. And, and, you know, they said women should be able to protect themselves and defend themselves and it should not be okay. Right. Right. So the, the, as the book will tell, tell us a little bit about the, the, the four women you profile and then, then let's turn to um, September, 2014, where, where the forces sort of get joined in a substantial way. Yes. And so, you know, the book works to really take you into the world of women who took up arms thinking they might keep the regime out, you know, nothing, you know, no kind of global battle, right? And end up being thrust onto the global stage by the fight against the Islamic State. So you'll meet Rojda, who's deeply introverted, you know, loves Diego Maradona, never thought she'd be a pharmacist, Certainly didn't expect to be a field commander leading uh, the battle to retake Raqqa from the Islamic State. Uh, introverted and a huge book lover. Um, Azima, who is, you know, many readers have written me about, you know, swashbuckling, chain smoking, you know, high school volleyball star, who is just good fun and also incredibly brave and motivated by a desire for justice, I think above all else. And she's kind of the person in your family who never takes no for an answer. That's her. <laughs> and then as Nareen, who is just this kind of one of the one of the loveliest people I've ever met, who also has seen more war than most people I've ever met, which is actually saying something. And she's, she was this young woman who was shaped by no. You know, she couldn't go to university because her uncle said that's not what women in her family do she couldn't marry the person she loved because her uncle says that's not what women in our family do i've chosen a spouse for you and she defied him and said no i will if i can't marry the person i love i will never marry and we follow her journey from that moment all the way to becoming an aide for naruz who i'll tell you about in a moment and then leading her hometown into liberation from the islamic state and becoming a role model really in her family and then Naruz, who's the head of the women's protection units, uh, thought she might be a lawyer, you know, and was uh, from a big family. Mother, like almost all of the women in the story, had a mother who uh, was uh, never got to be educated. And would come and say to her, I make sure your life looks different than mine. 
And actually that was something that my mother used to say to me. So I, I really felt I understood that and uh, I appreciated what an impact that had made on her. And we follow her really leading the women's protection units and being uh, sort of number two in the people's protection units and being a chief interlocutor with the United States as the global coalition to stop the Islamic State takes shape. Yeah. So 2014, uh, the Islamic State militants attack Kobani, which is the the heart of the thesis of of your of your uh, the heart of the story of your your book. But again, in the history lesson um, area, tell us just in five minutes what is ISIL, ISIS, ISIS. You know what? Who are they? You know, we we hear their names, we hear yeah. Al Qaeda. We get confused. What is Al Qaeda? What is ISIS? Tell, tell us who it is that these daughters of Kobani were fighting against in Kobani sure. to start. That's right. So 2013, the Islamic State, uh, Barak and Syria, however you want to call it, that is, is announced uh, as a caliphate by uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in the town of Mosul, and who declares himself the supreme, you know, sort of the, the, the leader who cannot be uh, challenged uh, in of the Islamic State. And Baghdadi has this transnational vision of returning uh, to, the t- to his version of 7th seven, century Islam. And he does it with spectacle and with barbarity. And his idea is not really of an insurgency, but of a nation state. You know, And if you look at the way that ISIS fought, the thing that always stuck out to people wa- who follow military matters was that they fought like a conventional force. They had a quick reaction force. They understood how to use heavy weaponry. They understood uh, tactics. They wanted to govern, right? I mean, they, they really had the institutions as soon as they could establish them of a nation state uh, as, as they took towns. And in that view of the world, um, there's a distinct view of the Yazidi community, which becomes part of this story, uh, and of the role of women and the role of the Hezbollah or, or vice and virtue uh, forces. But ISIS itself in 2013 and 2014, as it is really capturing the world's imagination, um, was an idea that attracted fighters from across the globe to be part of something big and to reach all the way to Rome and beyond in uh, a way that would be unforgettable to the West. Yeah, I, when you read the book, and then for me, when I read the book, I immediately started reading the history. Um, I went straight, because you're a, um, an adjunct at the Council of Foreign Relations, I went straight to the Council of Foreign Relations uh, webpage and started reading about it. And it's there's a frightening similarity to the Second World War in this effort of these ISIS fighters to, you know, sort of dominate um, as a, as a, as a, you call it a nation state, building uh, um, a force. So they arrive in the town of Kobani. They've been successful in essentially every battle as they sort of like are rolling across, you know, they're, they, they've gone right. through Czechoslovakia, if you will. <laughs> they're, 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 you know, Belgium has fallen. They, they are, you know, and they, they hit this little town of, of, of Kobani or middle, middle-sized town of, of yeah. Kobani. And, and that's where the story really is joined. So what happens? 
So Kobani is a town that very few outside the region had heard of on the Turkish border and uh, largely Kurdish population. Kobani is not a town that the Islamic State expects to get resistance from in great numbers, right? So maybe be a little bit challenging, but not going to be sort of the fight of a lifetime. And what it finds in Kobani is this fighting force made up of men and women who are deeply committed to bringing the fight to the Islamic State and who will die before they are willing to let ISIS rule their town, in part because they've seen at this point what happened in Sinjar, which is a town in northern Iraq where ISIS really meted out true crimes against humanity. Uh, Men were rounded up and murdered, and that included boys. And girls and women of all ages were put together, and those who they chose were spot and sold uh, across Iraq and Syria to be either slaves or slaves and uh, of the Islamic State. And this has just happened in Sinjar, right? The summer of 2014. Now we're in the late summer, early fall of 2014. And Kobani, all of these people watching are just, they are not willing. Some of these people had driven into Sinjar to rescue people from the mountains and then come back. Uh, so they are not allowed about to let their town fall. And they also know they have almost no chance of resisting ISIS, which has not had one loss uh, at that time, as you mentioned. Yeah, so it's interesting. They be they sort of on a house by house, block by block basis, start defending uh, their town, and the U.S. and the rest of the world seems to be um, paralyzed in some sense in in respect of of ISIS. Obama runs, as you said, on a platform of of no foreign entanglements, no. Um, boots on the, on the ground. And yet here comes ISIS rolling across the world with, with frightening speed and with an ideology that's terrifying. And, and so the, the women and the men of Kobani have to make a, a decision about U.S., knowing that U.S. is, um, I don't know how to say it, they're, they're an unreliable partner. Um, on a long-term basis, but so tell us, tell us how this fight gets fought, and the the how the 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 women of Kobani become sort of like the ground force of the U.S. Air Force. Yeah, so this becomes, I think, a number of scenes. I always think visually when I'm writing. I think if you think about a number of scenes playing out simultaneously on the ground in northeastern Syria, are women and men fighting ISIS. Right, August, September, the siege of Kobani begins. They attack. Viciously. And uh, the Syrian Kurdish side, the People's Protection Unit, take deep losses uh, at the beginning. And, and in fact, I mean, throughout, really, they are, ISIS is bringing uh, real uh, firepower that they cannot answer uh, to them. But they are trying to use the tools they have. They know the city, they have committed fighters, they understand the town. And in many ways, they just need to hold out for another day, sort of the mantra, keep going, right? Figure out how you can inflict enough loss uh, to at least survive for one more day. And then you can figure out that plan that night. Um, At that point, no one thinks they are going to make it past the Islamic State. 
Then on the other side is, you know, other also playing at the same time as the U.S. and its hunt for a ground force against ISIS. Um, the tragedy of the James Foley murder, the situation in Sinjar, all of these are now, you know, the, the most importantly, I think in many ways were as important as the Foley tragedy and the Yazidi uh, massacre is uh, Mosul falling. And the United States really having a moment where it's, holy cow, this is not a, a this is this is quite serious. They are taking towns and serious town, big towns, big towns and towns that are that are important. Right. So they're getting close to Erbil, where there are U.S. forces, U.S. diplomats, U.S. interests. So all of this is happening simultaneously. And the Americans are trying to figure out who is the ground force that is going to stop ISIS, because there's no chance it's going to be the United States. Right. There's not going to be any large scale deployment of U.S. ground forces. So who will do it? Who was also willing to stop short of toppling Assad? And that those two things are happening simultaneously. So here comes Kobani and the tyranny of the camera. Because what is happening is that because cameras can be in Turkey, which is quite literally if you're in Kobani, you put out your left arm and your left arm is almost in Turkey, right? Um, the, that, you know, the border is that really right there. Um, the cameras are capturing this David versus Goliath showdown in which David is also a woman. And the whole world is watching as almost no one is willing to come to the aid of this fighting force that is standing up to ISIS. And really, in not coming to their aid, they bolster the kind of narrative that begins to form around the Syrian Kurds, right? Because here they are holding off ISIS while the world is watching on CNN, on uh, on MS, right? On, on, you know, in real time on Facebook, on WhatsApp, people are watching the stand of these of this militia that is standing up to the seemingly unstoppable ISIS and the social media, public demand starts to mount. Who is going to come help these people as they face off against ISIS, which is a fight that truly was not theirs alone, was the world's fight to yeah. stop the Islamic State. Yeah. And and so how does the coalition get built finally? So the Iraqi Kurds in the summer, and the book really talks about this, had introduced some folks on the U.S. side to the Syrian Kurds who had been looking, this group of Syrian Kurds had been seeking international support for some time. They understood they were technologically outmatched. They were outmatched sort of across the board uh, by ISIS. And they were telling people, we'll do the fighting. We have the people. We have the discipline. We have the command and control. But we need support. So the U.S. starts talking to them. And it's a very pragmatic conversation right from the start, looking at maps, talking about governance. Can we work with these people? Um, the Iraqi Kurds, with whom the U.S. had deep trust and longstanding relationships, were vouching for them, too. And then the Americans start watching them fight and watching really the, the will and the command and control discipline that they have in not backing down. And so all of these things start to converge and the U.S. begins to get involved from the air and start to support their quest to hold off the Islamic State in Kobani uh, from the skies. And at the beginning, no one thinks or very few people think that that will be enough to keep the town from falling. Right, right. And it becomes the, the Syrian women on the ground, U.S. bombs in the air. And at the end, um, Kobani 
stays in the hands of the Syrian Kurds. It's the first loss of um, the ISIS uh, fighting units. Um, and it's a terrific story, but but I'd love you to, to, because there are many more battles to come. This was not the, ISIS didn't say, oh my God, we <laughs> lost, we lost. We better, we better go home and end our, you know, dreams for a caliphate and uh, seventh century Islam. Um, but, but because you focused on the, the personalities of some of the women, I, I loved um, the fact that in the midst of this war, here you have a Zima who's a, a sniper and, 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 and just a ferocious fighter. They, they're talking on radios to one another, and each side is listening to the other side's conversations. So they're, they're talking. Talk, talk a little bit about how the, the, the ISIS was saying, you know, Azima, we know, yeah. you know, and stuff. And while at the same time on her cell phone, on her cell phone, her, mom, her mother is calling her saying, you know, where are you and when are you coming home, you know? I mean, this is the thing about technology. First of all, you can, they could listen to each other the entire time, more or less. And their families of the women that we follow also could track where they were. You know, you, they were not, they were just a couple hours drive away for most of them, sometimes only an hour and a half, two hours. Uh, and so their moms were calling, their brothers were calling, their, their uh, friends were calling, what's happening? What do you need? What are you seeing on the ground? All of these things was playing out in real time. And their phones were capturing so much of this also, right? The video. Of the video. Um, and Azima is just, you know, just one of them who had, they had this connectedness to what we see as an abstraction, which are the men of the Islamic state, because they understood them from facing off against them day by day by day for so many years. And there's a moment early on in the battle for Kobani where there's, oh, Azim, you know, the beginning ISIS was saying, you know, kill as many women as you can, right? Just pick off the women. And later it was, don't get killed by those tricky women snipers. They're very clever. Right. And it was true that even going on into the battles, the, the Americans would always say that the best sniper against the Islamic State was this woman that they wanted ISIS to know could be anywhere at any time. And so Azima, you know, was listening to them talk about, oh, we're going to come kill you. We're going to come enslave you. And she's listening to this whole thing go up. And, you know, she has an answer. But, the, you know, some of the younger folks, you know, answer and say, oh, you know, you're such a man. Come out and show yourself. And, uh, you know, sometimes they did. And if they did, they tend to have gotten shot. That's right. Yeah. So uh, you write that there's a, a wonderful irony um, of the unintended consequence of the ISIS decision to attack Kabani and the and the and what it what it spawned sort of politically. Um, you, can you talk about that? Yes. It, this was the unintended consequences of attacking with such ferocity this town that was going to put up resistance and also the unintended consequences of Turkey, of NATO ally Turkey not uh, coming to the aid of the town, right? Because it made it look, and most everybody else in the international community, because it grew the myth of this underdog force that would bring the fight to the Islamic State no matter what and made the world sit up and pay attention to their story and and truly catapulted them onto the international stage and made an ideology that had not necessarily seemed mainstream 
uh, too many. His whole grassroots participatory democracy experiment with women right at the heart um, seem not just uh, an alternative to the Islamic State, but truly something um, really compelling that the world started paying attention to. Right. You, you write that ISIS had this utopian vision of ideological dominance uh, you know, that relates back to their interpretation of 7th century Islam, where women are property and sex slaves are sold and bought. Um, and it confronts the Syrian utopian ideology of the democracy uh, uh, for women. And these two ideological forces, not only the armies, but the ideological forces um, clash there with the women coming on out on top. Yes, it is a clash of worldviews, right? I mean, here you have Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and the Islamic State with this worldview that was, you know, went well beyond women, right? It was really about their view of what Islam should look like and what the, the structures of the state should be. And anyone, including mostly Muslims who opposed that were their enemy. Absolutely. And that came up against this view that was seen by many as, uh, as quite radical that Abdullah Ocalan was proposing. You don't need a nation state. You need local grassroots, New England style town hall kind of rule, no hierarchy, environmental consciousness, uh, embedded corporate skepticism, women at the center, and that that was the way to govern. Yeah. And those worldviews could not be more opposed. And what were the odds that they would come into contact with one another every day with the U.S. backing the Syrian Kurds? Yeah. And um, I'd like to talk about one or two other battles, but but before before we do that, one of the important things that come out of this um, is this Democratic Union Party and the Syrian Democratic Council, because in some sense that may be like the lasting legacy of of, of this um, war. And and so, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so this becomes the governing structure as this goes well beyond Kurdish regions. There's a scene in the in the book actually. It, historical theme where uh, Brett McGurk from the United States, uh, now back in the Obama, I'm sorry, so now in the Biden administration, back then was in the uh, Obama White House, goes to the Syrian Kurds and says, you know, we need you to keep going. Uh, and we need you to go beyond Kurdish regions. And we also need the force to be, to include uh, those from the Arab communities. This is absolutely crucial. And uh, Maslum, the head of the Syrian, uh, then the People's Protection Units, uh, says yes, and they form this umbrella group, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, who become uh, the People's Protection Units, and Women's Protection Units then fall under. The political side of that is the Syrian Democratic Council that is designed uh, to be multi-ethnic, across communities, multi-faith, and to be the governing uh, organ of uh, the region. Every town they took well before the Syrian Democratic Council existed, 
they have a female and a male co-head of the town. Every town has a women's council. Every town has um, this notion of justice for women with uh, women judges trying certain cases. The governing compact of this area has women mentioned 13 times. Uh, yes to women's equality, no to uh, child marriage, no to dowry, yes to girls' education. All of these are embedded in their document. And the Syrian Democratic Council, uh, which has a Washington representative, Senator Muhammad, uh, you know, is the governing body for this organization. Yeah. So you've got this Syrian Democratic forces, this now yes. multi-party Arab and Kurdish and other fighters yeah. mm-hmm. on the ground fighting. Uh, you've got the Syrian Democratic Council, uh, a civil um, structure, and um, things are are going well with active participation of women in um, sort of all all walks of of life. And we roll through various. Um, battles. And one of the things that, that sort of made me tear up in the book, um, and I tear up easily, but one of the things that made me tear up in, in the book is as the women are, forces are fighting, the women's protection unit fight, forces are, are fighting, as they liberate towns, women and young girls are, are coming up to them and talking to them. And I thought those conversations were deeply meaningful and, and something that we should talk about today. Uh, it goes to representation, right? I mean, when you, there's a story uh, I heard often um, and it's in the book about when they're in Manbij and this older woman from the Arab community comes out and puts her hands on the cheeks of this young woman who has, part of liberating Manbij from the Islamic State. And she says, you know, what took you so long? We didn't know you were real. Right. And, you know, you talked to, I spent a lot of time with Manbij women, young women from the Manbij Military Council who joined because they were late teens, had spent several years living under the Islamic State and watched women come through their streets saying, you know, you can come out, ISIS is gone. And, you know, for a teenage girl, that's a, I don't care where you are in the world. That's a big deal. Yeah. And, and I, I, look like you. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's what we talk about in easily about diversity and, and representation. And, and here was real time representation of women fighting for themselves, not on the ground in military terms alone, but for their own self-determination and control of their lives. And young girls are coming up and saying like, are you real? You know, can I, can I touch you? And there's a, there's a story in the, in the, in the battle of, um, of Raqqa, which I thought was um, unbelievably painful, which was that of Dalal. So we can understand really what was, what was really going on here? What was this fight really about what, why were these daughters of Kobani so driven? Um, and Dalal sort of sums it up in, in, in some sense. Yes. This is a young woman who I think about, if not daily, then pretty close to it. Uh, one of the most courageous people I've ever met it was a young woman who came from Raqqa uh, and had a brother as a teenager who joined the Islamic state and, you know, mother opposed it, but that, you know, he was committed and 
his next move was to compel his sister to marry an Islamic State fighter, one of the brothers, as he said. And she said, no, she didn't want to. So very bright. And that was not relevant. So he forces her to marry. She marries. She tries to go home to her mother. Her mother sends her, her brother, finds out she's at the mother's house and sends her back. And she eventually tries to divorce and cannot. Uh, and really finds herself afoul of both her husband and uh, those uh, who are around him in the Islamic State, ends up being brutalized in a way that I think was actually, even for me, who's heard a lot, I actually almost couldn't make it through the story because you have this mix of just anger and inability to grasp what someone is telling you, even when you really do understand every word they're saying, you just can't imagine how they're then sitting in front of you. So she makes her way back from what is ostensibly a rape camp and joins women's protection units once she's back in Raqqa. And, uh, you know, really, I, it, was, it was almost an accident that I heard her story. I was going around asking various people if they could tell me a little bit about themselves and how they came to join the women's protection units. And she spoke. Um, but I said to her at the end of her story, uh, which was followed by, you know, which was in a room that was silent, except for the sound of sunflower seeds hitting the metal, uh, bowl below, um, how she had the courage to be there. And she looked at me and said, why should a world in which people can do this to women stand? This was her way of saying it shouldn't. And having the courage to be there and to show up and to say that her life would stand against that. It was something I think about all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. You take us through in the book, several um, important um, battles where the, the four main protagonists have military roles that are just like, I think one of them was, um, in uh, Manbij, where they there was a, a river crossing, a flotilla, a floating pontoon bridge, and this was the first time that an American military force had endeavored to do something like that since the Korean War, right? Yes, the first contested wet gap crossing since since Korea was what I was told. Yeah, 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 and and we go through these battles and I'm not going to say, you know, what happened in all of them. All, although the four protagonists are just stars, of course. Um, but we get to a point where the, where ISIS is defeated. Um, the, the last sort of battle was their capital, which was Raqqa and um, it's defeated. And, and, and you're talking to the, the women and, you ask about it and they give an answer, which is, you know, sort of chilling, which is they say, in the end, it is easier to kill a terrorist than an ideology. Yeah. Um, and that um, what is, un has to be understood is that liberating land is, is not enough. Um, it's important that we have continued international support so that the Syrian Democratic Council and all the uh, civil um, 
protections that have been built into their constitution can can continue. And I'm not sure that 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 succeeded. Uh, tell us, tell us if you would. Um, it succeeded in the minds of the of the women for sure, and and it'll be in the DNA for sure. But uh, in the interest of time, just jump ahead a little bit and tell us about Operation Peace Spring and and um, what happens after the fall of ISIS and what we hope was going to be sort of the happy ending of Syrian Kurds with self-determination, um, with U.S. continued support? What happens? So uh, in October of 2019, uh, Turkey launches an incursion into this part of northeastern Syria, and Turkish-backed forces uh, really carry out this incursion and take back two towns from the SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, and throw the entire area into upheaval and the U.S. withdraws almost instantly uh, in a way that shocks commanders uh, on the ground also. And one thing I will say that is deeply remarkable is that I was there in December 2019 and I kept saying, is this still happening in Raqqa? Is this still happening in Tabqa? Is this still happening in Mambij? And everyone looked at me and said, yes, it's all the same. There's still a civil council. There's still a women's council. Oh, yes, Gail. Yes, yes, yes. So even amid 200,000 people displaced, the upheaval of uh, the U.S. withdrawing from Kobani, the U.S. is no longer present in Kobani, um, and that happening in just a matter of days, what had been built in years, uh, you see the enduring nature and the almost deeply unexpected, uh, fragile, but real uh, stability that is there in the region. Raqqa is a town controlled by Russia and the regime nominally, but still has all the governance structures that are in place from the Syrian Democratic Council, even today as we speak. And that is a tribute and a testament to all those from Raqqa who have come to rebuild and who have argued for uh, better governance and for where we are today, which is this very fragile, endangered, but real uh, kind of uh, stability that has been built by the folks in this book. Yeah. What does Biden's pulling out of Syria mean for this? Well, right now, there is no change uh, from right now. So Trump, uh, President Trump withdrew a number of U.S. forces from Syria, but almost immediately they were back. And so because U.S. forces are still remain in Iraq, the supply lines in Syria remain uh, happening and U.S. forces remain in Syria even while we speak right now in smaller numbers than before October 2019, but very much present. And they are helping to keep this fragile stability in place. Uh, you never see the Americans. They are sort of this Oz-like presence that hangs over, but they help the Syrian Democratic Forces, the partners in the fight against the Islamic State, keep the Russians, the Syrian regime, the Iranians, uh, the Turks, and ISIS uh, at bay. Hmm. In in 2019, you're, you're back and you're you're talking to Nehru's the the this second in command. Uh, I can't wait for the movies and the TV uh, shows, which have all been sold, and and we'll get to see this. Uh, on, uh, didn't didn't the Clintons buy? Um, 
it is a hidden light, which is uh, Secretary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton and Sam Branson's production company. Yes, they had the rights to turn it into a, a series. Yeah, TV series. Yeah. Which we, I hope they give you a cameo at least. <laughs> no, I don't want that. But yes, we'll get it right. But anyway, you, you, you're you talking to Nehru's and you say, you ask her whether it was all worth it, giving, given all the, the death and and you ask her, was it all worth it? And what would she like a girl 20 years, born 20 years from now, to understand about the war that these women waged against ISIS? I thought her answer was wonderful. And I'd love for you to tell the listening audience, if you will, what what it was, because it's, it's, it's great. She said, more or less, I want them to know this that this happened and that we did it for them. And they, 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 they want to make sure that they will grow up in a world where they know how to protect themselves, how to be independent, how to be powerful, right? And that they grow up in a world in which we don't think it's so strange that women hold and exercise power. Yeah. For the sake of others, not power for its own sake but for the sake of ensuring justice and equity. Yeah. And that, that I think is the lasting um, legacy here. Um, you write, uh, you sort of end the book with a notion that you say the future of Northeastern Syria remains a question written in invisible link, ink in a language that no one can decipher. Yes. It's an open question, but what is decided is the history that these women made. And the fight, not simply to stop the Islamic State, but to advance a world in which women and girls had their rights, could exercise their power, and could take up space. Hmm. It's the Daughters of Kobani. It's a wonderful read. Thank you so much for writing it, for the three years that it took you in that region to research this. Um, It's an important book. And, and I'm very grateful for you having done that. And I'm even more grateful that you took the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking the story so personally, because that is how stories like this get shared. We can do all uh, the, the kind of television in the world, but it's really the discussions like this where we get to dig into the heart of it that are such a joy. And then I hope bring uh, even more people to this story. Thank you so much. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.